Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When you tour a Civil War battlefield or museum, do you ever wonder about how fascinating it would be to work in such a place? Or how people get those jobs? Or what they do the rest of the day when they aren't giving visitor tours? We'll look behind the scenes at two Civil War sites that should be on everyone's must-visit list as we talk with Elizabeth Parnitza, historian and site manager at the Chancellorsville Visitor Center in the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, and with Tim Talbot, Director of Education at Pamplin Historical Park and the National Museum of the Civil War Soldier, Petersburg, Virginia. And we'll talk with them tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not from the Brewster Building, not from the third floor, not anywhere from on campus at East Carolina University, but from my own home base, uh, and tonight, I'll uh, be here only for a short time and then taking you back to Gettysburg in the summer of 2018, where we have an interview recorded last year at the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. 
The show is being webcast to you tonight on Halloween night, October 31, 2018. Halloween is a big holiday here in Greenville. There's a giant party downtown. Lots of suggestive costumes are worn by students. There's a lot of underage alcohol consumption. The parking lots are closed on campus, so I could not go there even if I wanted to to broadcast tonight. And every year the provost sends all the faculty a memo reminding us, don't cancel classes the next day, don't legitimize the behavior. Uh, They're still accountable. They still need to be there first thing in the morning, ready to answer our questions. Well, there's also no football this past weekend, a bye weekend for both ECU and my alma mater, University of Michigan. Uh, In other ECU news, however, I am here to repent every time I have ever made fun of the Golden Corral chain restaurant, something I've probably done more times than I imagine. It turns out that the founder of the restaurant chain, James Maynard, is a 1965 alumnus of ECU, and he just donated $1 million from James and Connie Maynard and their daughter, Easter, to fund undergraduate scholarships here on campus. So I, again, promise never again to make fun of Golden Corral. There is some very interesting email over the past week or two. I got a wonderful message uh, in the last day or so from a lieutenant colonel who heard the show about staff rides. Uh, Christopher Stowe from the Marine Corps uh, Command and Staff College talked about taking officers on battlefields. So uh, I heard from uh, an officer who teaches at the Joint Forces Staff College in Norfolk. He talked about hearing uh, Professor Stowe's methodologies, comparing them with his own, uh, benefiting in a professional sense. Every time I think, oh, this week's show is just too obscure, uh, too specialized, it turns out there are listeners who who are into just that thing and, and they benefit from it. So I'm delighted to hear that. Also got an email from a longtime listener who is at this very moment, traveling with Dr. Mark Bielski on a Stephen Ambrose historical tours trip, exploring the Mississippi campaign. And uh, listener credits Civil War Talk Radio with getting him to take the trip, so I'm happy for him and for uh, for Mark and uh, everybody who's out there on the Mississippi River this week. Heard from yet another listener who had some interesting ideas about the Confederate monument controversy that is always ongoing. Uh, they were not ideas I entirely agreed with, but they gave me encouragement that we can resolve differences on political and social issues short of violence when people like him take the time uh, to express themselves to offer their views with the hope of persuading those of us who think differently rather than trying to bludgeon them or intimidate them into intellectual submission. Uh, That kind of exchange really does give me hope. And that is something uh, much needed these days, Uh, this being the last week of October 2018. Outside of Civil War news, there were two acts of political terrorism in the United States in the past week. The mail bomb sent to political figures and media organizations that the bomber was opposed to. And then there was a violent attack that killed 11 people in a Jewish neighborhood in Pittsburgh. I try, as as you know, to keep explicitly political rhetoric out of Civil War talk radio. I recognize there's a wide range of political opinion among those of you listening. But I'm confident that all Civil War talk radio listeners, and in fact anybody who knows anything about the politics of the 1850s, 
in the 750,000 deaths that followed during the 1860s uh, is surely opposed to violence as a political tactic. And for that reason, I see the very existence of this program, a place where people of many differing political views can come together, where we can share uh, our common interest in Civil War history, where we discuss things every week in a calm, rational tone, uh, at least I strive to do that, that would prize education over emotion. I see that very fact as a political statement in itself. By the time Abraham Lincoln used his first inaugural address to call upon the better angels of our nature to avoid the impending bloodbath, uh, as we all know, it was too late. In its very, very comparatively small way, I hope that Civil War Talk Radio is an example of how we can all still follow the better angels of our nature uh, to share our common interest in history, regardless of our politics, and find things that we, we prize in common uh, rather than things that separate us, uh, and hopefully this time before it's too late. A couple of places where you can do just that, join with like-minded people and talk about the Civil War, hear from those who write about it or work on it for a living, uh, are places like the Lincoln Forum in Gettysburg, November 16 through 18, 2018. Go to thelincolnforum.org and find out about that. You can go to next year's Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, June 14 through 19. Their website is www.gettysburg.edu slash CWI. And of course, this hallowed ground will be the Civil War tour I'll be leading next year. Uh, 2019, May 18 through 26. Go to Stephen Ambrose Tours, learn about that, and come and join us. It's always interesting. While you're waiting for that, next week we've got Jennifer Murray here to talk about the Gettysburg Battlefield. On the 14th of November, Jeffrey Hunt to talk about Meade and Lee after Gettysburg. A Thanksgiving break follows that. And then on November 28th, uh, Deirdre Cooper Owens writes about a book called Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. A different topic altogether for Civil War Talk Radio uh, from the same era. So check those out. Uh, go to impedimentsofwar.org, see what Mark Gaffney is writing there, and uh, leave your suggestions on my email, send donations to the book fund, and uh, enjoy tonight's program. Tonight's guests were recorded at the Civil War Institute on June 24, 2018. Uh, Elizabeth Parnitza from the Chancellorsville Visitor Center at the Fredericksburg Spotsylvania National Military Park. Tim Talbot from Pamplin Historical Park National Museum of the Civil War Soldier. And to our engineer, Aaron Rodriguez, I say, A-Rod, take it away. Well, welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. You heard a bit of the theme music of the show, uh, Granny Will Your Dog Bite. That version, however, is not the usual one. It was one by J.P. and Anna Dean Fraley, uh, a fiddler I heard first at Berea College back in the 1970s, and just a short uh, Chapter 17 fair use excerpt of his music, uh, of their music there, uh, to start us off on Civil War Talk Radio, coming to you today not from World Headquarters in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University, nor from one of the many annexes, uh, my home on Oxford Road or anywhere else. Rather, we are at the uh, 
headquarters of the Civil War Institute of Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So we are literally on the battlefield. The Civil War Institute was gracious enough to invite me in 2018 to come here and talk with people face to face, a, a shocking change from the usual uh, phone interviews that we do, but one, but an experiment that, that we hope you'll enjoy and that will perhaps be repeated on future uh, shows. So our guests today are two uh, practitioners of public history. Uh, Elizabeth Parnitza is, uh, is a park historian at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park in Virginia. And Tim Talbot is director of education at Pamplin Park, which uh, encompasses a part of the Petersburg uh, siege lines of 1864 and 1865. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, let me start by asking you about your, uh, your, your jobs as public historians, uh, and, and in particular, what point in your life you decided you, this was something you wanted to do. Beth, let me start with you. What, uh, sure. When did you realize the Civil War was an interesting topic? Yeah, so my story is actually a little bit different than a lot of my colleagues who I think got inspired as children, but for me, um, I didn't really come to the Civil War until I was in high school when I really started to read more about 19th century people and even just historical figures in general and I realized how much I was inspired to learn more and just very, very curious about history and my family was uh, a little bit questionable about it because they are all sort of math and science people, mm. but um, I know those kind of people, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> which I, I still love them dearly though, but I, I sort of talked them around to it. And um, as soon as I decided that I wanted to do history and I wanted to study the Civil War, to me, the, the absolute best you know, dream job that I could get was to work on a Civil War battlefield, to uh. actually have the resources at hand, to be able to talk to people and have these deep conversations with the public that, that they could in turn learn the same things that I was learning, that I could learn from them, and then that we could all start to um, see how history plays a role in our lives and act accordingly. So, living the dream, working at uh, Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania. Uh, Very much part, so. Uh, Tim, what about you? When did you decide uh, Civil War history was, was a worthwhile topic? Well, I got bitten by the history bug pretty early, around 10 or 11 years old. My dad was a history enthusiast and had lots of books around, and my mom encouraged us by taking us to trips to the library. Any subject that we were interested in, she encouraged us to learn more about it. Uh, but once I went to graduate school, I mean, um, undergraduate school, I uh, focused more on business hmm. um, and had a non-traditional public history career from there. I worked for 10 years in business before deciding that's not my thing and we needed to pursue something that was more my passion. So um, went back and got my undergraduate degree in history as well and then uh, my master's in public history and then was able to land in a job at Pamplin Park. You say that's a non-traditional path. In some ways, it actually is the traditional path for a lot of us. I certainly, I, I practiced law for a while before going straight and, and, and returning to history as a, as a passion. Uh, Beth, what about you? What was your, your academic path that got you to your current position? Yeah, it's um, startlingly straightforward, actually. So mm -hmm. I, when I graduated high school, I went to West Virginia University, where I studied um, under Peter Carmichael, of mm. course, who's, who's directing director this institute. Here. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I you know, wrote an honors thesis. And as I was in the process of getting my education, I got an internship with the park at Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania um, after my freshman year. And I worked there in the summers. And so as soon as I graduated, uh, the 
government had a student hiring process at the mm -hmm. time, so they were able to hire me on full-time as soon as I graduated. So I got my bachelor's at WVU and went to the park and haven't looked back since. That, Although, some some considerations of grad school, but, but nothing coming out yet. That That is, again, the, the, the dream story. I know my students back at East Carolina University will be happy to hear about people <laughs> who take their, their undergrad degrees and, and get right into the field. Um, it, it's not always possible to do that. How important are internships for someone who wants to practice public history? You, you, yours led directly to a job. Yeah, I mean, for me, I would say they're they're pretty critical because um, for a couple of different reasons. You want to get that experience in the field, so you want to have some time to develop ways of speaking to people and ways of, of understanding and condensing history. But I think also critical for a lot of the interns that I've seen, both when I was an intern and also in the years since, to help make sure that it, it is what people want to do. You know, I had many people who, you know, for me, I, it was love at first walking tour, but there were many people who, um, who got there and said, you know, this isn't quite what I was looking for. Maybe a classroom is better for me, or maybe an archives. Maybe I don't actually want to talk to people, but I still want to preserve documents or I want to work with artifacts. It, it, that's yeah. uh, a lot of public history programs, including ours at UC, require internships, both at undergrad and graduate level, for exactly that reason. Find out now if you really, really want to do this. Tim, you hire interns at, at Pamplin Park. We do. Um, we have real good relationships with a lot of our area universities, uh, some that are just traditional history-focused um, programs, other ones that are public history programs. But I think it's a real great opportunity for those folks to see the diversity of historical organizations and how they're run. Uh, if, if they have the opportunity or ability to do more than one internship, I would suggest that as well because each place is run differently, managed differently, probably covered different topics, and they can see that diversity of um, career opportunities. One of the other things that strikes me about internships is the, the importance of networking. That that. It's not, a, it's not a field where you need to know people in the sense of pulling strings, but when, if, you know, you studied Beth with Peter Carmichael and, and he ends up directing the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg, so he knows people who you can meet through that connection, or you mentioned his name. Uh, you and I met uh, when I was leading a, a Stephen Ambrose historical tours group at Chancellorsville last spring, and uh, I mentioned I was coming here, you mentioned Peter Carmichael as your mentor, and so we had something in common, and, and that you know, makes things work out. So I want to ask you both about the, the challenges of doing public history at the kind of institutions where you both work, one privately owned, one publicly owned. Uh, so we'll take a short break. We'll come back more with public historians Beth Parnitza and Tim Talbot. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. 
Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with two public historians, Beth Parnitza of the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, and Tim Talbot, Director of Education at Pamplin Park, which encompasses part of the Petersburg battlefield. Uh, Both are engaged in working with the public. Uh, We talked a little bit in the first segment about how one gets a position like that. If you're interested in studying public history, it's always good to talk with people who are not wearing paper hats or driving Ubers, uh, actually doing uh, something in the field. And I would say the jobs are out there. They're not necessarily remunerative at the first level, but if you stick with it, something good may happen. let me change the topic to asking you about the, the challenges you face. And, and Tim, let me start with you. Uh, what kind of audiences do you get at Pamplin Park? Actually, tell us a little bit about Pamplin Park. Uh, Will Green's been on the show before. Listeners, you can go back and look that up and, and get the whole history of the place. But give us the, the, the thumbnail. So the Pamplin Historical Park and the National Museum of the Sol- Civil War Soldiers, a private nonprofit uh, history organization just outside of Petersburg, Virginia, in Dinwiddie County. Virginia, and uh, it's on the grounds of what was once a um, Virginia tobacco plantation, Tudor Hall Plantation, which was owned by the Boysaw family. But in the fall, excuse me, in the uh, um, yes, fall of 1864, um, as the Confederate, as the Union Army makes its moves around Petersburg, uh, a defensive line is built through the Boysaw family's property, and um, that is largely the part of the battlefield that we interpret from. Um, the fall of 1864 through the breakthrough which happened 
uh, by the Sixth Corps there on the park, what is now the park grounds, on April 2nd, 1865. So we have the National Museum of the Civil War Soldier. We also have the Battlefield Center, which covers the Petersburg Campaign and the breakthrough, uh, but we also interpret that antebellum life as well with Tudor Hall Plantation. Um, so we've got um, three historic houses on the property and two good museums there. So what, what kind of audiences do you get? Uh, who comes to Pamplin Park? We get a wide variety of uh, guests that come to the park. Um, of course, walk-in visitors. We also have um, travel groups that come that are adult travelers. Um, our largest visitors are, of course, uh, school-age children, um, mainly fourth, fifth, and sixth graders who come to visit the park in the spring months when Virginia is covering the Civil War in the curriculum. Um, the months from March, April, and May uh, are heavily trafficked with the school groups, Monday through Friday, handling anywhere between 450 and 500 kids a day. Is that your biggest challenge when you have a 500 uh, day, 500 visitor day of, of students? We've got it sort of down to a science. The stressful part is hiring enough seasonal employees to, to lead those groups and to provide the costumed interpretation for them as well uh, each year. We have some people that come back year to year, uh, but often we're struggling to find the people that will make a commitment for three months when we really need them. That's a, a big challenge. How about visitation? Uh, when, when you and I met, you were working at the Chancellor's Visitor, Chancellorsville Visitor Center. Uh, what? Who, who visits there? That's a great question. Um, for us, I mean, we do get some school kids as well, um, although most of those groups go to Fredericksburg in our park instead. Um, for us, we tend to get, I would say at Chancellorsville, a slightly more um, Civil War knowledgeable sort of group. So we get some families and we get um, probably the bulk of our visitation is going to be sort of middle, skewing middle age to older folks who have the time to travel, who have a deep interest in the Civil War, and then or are retired and, and then have you know the ability to come to visit the park. Uh, but what we see at Chancellorsville, interestingly, is um, a slightly more dedicated group of folks who, who tend to know a little bit about the Civil War when they get there, um, unlike perhaps a place like Gettysburg that probably gets more common. Um, also, you know, the full spectrum, they get the, the very devoted folks too, but... Um, so yeah. on the day that my group came to Chancellorsville this past May in 2018, you without warning we were showing up, uh, we, we came out from backstage and gave our group an excellent talk. At the same time, you were dealing with a roof leak, uh, putting a yes. bucket in one of the galleries. Uh, I mean, what are, those are the kind of challenges that the visitor doesn't see. What, what, goes, what are the biggest challenges right. behind the scenes? You know, that's the beauty of public history, I think, is that um, on, on your resume, you don't necessarily also need to list it, but it, it's helpful if you're skilled in projector repair and mm -hmm. uh, toilet plunging mm -hmm. and cash register operation. Um, leak management. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's just a lot of different components. You know, for me as a building supervisor of a visitor center, not only do I need to know the battle backwards and forwards and all the broad context and the different people involved and engaged, and I get to do great research, but yeah, I'm also dealing with a building that was constructed in 1863, and mm -hmm. although we've gotten new exhibits, we haven't had an infrastructure overhaul in 50 years, so we're, we're dealing with a, a bit of our um, of our own National Park Service past in history, which is excellent, but also means that from time to time we have insect infestations and sometimes the building leaks and sometimes the exhibits break. So it, 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 there was never a dull moment. I know from my own right. experience uh, in, in public history, there, it's something new every day. Uh, Tim, what about, and Pamplin Park looks like a very 
it's a very impressive setup. Uh, as you say, there are the museums, there are the, there, there's the, the Boysaw House, there are the, the slave cabins uh, that you interpret. Uh, there's the actual historic ground of the, the breakthrough from the Petersburg Lines. So it gives the impression of being you know, well-run, well-funded. Uh, what what, what's the bad stuff behind the scenes that you have to deal with? Well, of course, all that takes a lot of work. <laughs> um, just like any historic buildings, um, they're in a slow state of uh, deterioration. Um, so it's our job to try to keep them conserved and, and in good shape. Of course, a lot of the buildings that we have on our park property are recreations of historic buildings built off of examples that exist in Dinwiddie County. Um, and as those age, those things have to be repaired and, and taken care of. So it's a constant um, budgetary issue of trying mm -hmm. to find funds to get those buildings, but also finding the people that can do the repairs that are historically accurate mm -hmm. um, as well. So those are some challenges, but all that takes a lot of work. We do um, some historic agriculture there as well. So we maintain uh, an enslaved, an example of an enslaved garden also the um, Boysaw family's kitchen garden, and we have a crop demonstration field where we grow, well this year, about 90 tobacco plants. Mm -hmm. And with us just having three full-time staff in the education and interpretation department, a lot of that work falls on us uh, to do that. Um, so you're actually out there- Very physical labor. Weeding and, and uh, cutting the leaves, topping, and all, all the other things that go into raising yeah. tobacco. That's very labor intensive. Very labor intensive. So. Yeah. Um, but it's another one of those things that makes the job fun. Uh, wearing lots of different hats. Uh, you're not doing the same thing every day. And that's one of the things I like about the job. You're not stuck behind the desk. Uh, you're outside. Now some days when it's 98 degrees and the sun are beating down on you and you're um, topping plants, it's not all that fun, but <laughs> it's a variety. Now, you mentioned wearing different hats. and I've seen you wearing a kepi and uh, a garb of a Civil War soldier and demonstrating uh, firing a musket. Uh, so there's, but, you did that not speaking as a soldier. It was not a full first-person interpretation. You're wearing the the uh, appropriate clothing, but speaking in a 21st century voice. Do do you do any first-person interpretation, or does your institution? Um, on rare occasions, we'll do a first-person um, interpretation, but we often find that that's confusing to the guests. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the clothing helps the visitor understand that we're speaking of a different time, uh, but when you start taking on things like saying, how did you get here? And they say a car and you say, what's a car? That gets a little bit old. Mm -hmm. But there are occasions, for instance, like on 4th of July, this 4th of July that's coming up, one of my colleagues is gonna be doing an 1857 uh, example of a patriotic speech that a community member would give. So he's gonna be doing that in first person in that role. But most often we're uh, just wearing the attire to help the visitor better understand the change over time. Uh, First-person interpretation in the Park Service, uh, does it go on? Do, do you participate? Uh, so personally, I, I don't participate because, as I always joke with my colleagues, like I like to fit through doorways, and um, <laughs> I'm really not into the hoops uh, myself. But um, for the Park Service, it's similar, actually. We, um, for our park, at least at Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania, we typically shy away from the first-person presentation because, again, it, it can be confusing. So we'll do special presentations that way. Um, when people, you know, have an introduction and have the context that this this is a special demonstration. Of course, this person has no knowledge of modern technology. Please don't try to harass them in that capacity. 
But most of the time, if we have folks um, dressed in the garb, it's for a firing demonstration in there. Um, they're doing third person. Uh, there are some examples. I've done some time at, at Appomattox Courthouse National Historical Park last mm-hmm. summer, and, and we'll be going back this summer, and, and first person is something that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make sure that each program has an introduction and um, that everybody knows you know, in the group what's happening. But I've seen it, I've seen it um, be very effective in, in certain instances where it does help to transport visitors back. But then I've also seen some instances where, yeah, a visitor decides to try to explain nuclear warfare uh, to, uh, to some of our poor um, costumed interpreters, and it, it uh, didn't go that, so that's well. Not, not the best way to do it. Um, as a Park Service employee, you wear uniform. Uh, yes. And I ran into John Hennessy this morning, uh, your colleague at, at Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania, and he was in shorts and t-shirt, and it was the first time I'd seen him not in his ranger uniform, and I, I almost didn't recognize until he said hello. Uh, the uniform impresses the visitors, I will say, from a visitor's standpoint. Do you find it, it helps direct your interaction with people to, to have the full garb? To some degree, yeah. I mean, I think it does convey a sense of, of authority, you know, mm-hmm. that you know what you're talking about. Um, it's something that I think we tend to be very conscious of in realizing both that it conveys authority, which means that we need to act in a, in a likewise manner, but also sometimes finding ways uh, to make sure that we're not intimidating to folks because mm-hmm. we get, I mean, around town we get mistaken for a lot of different things, mm-hmm. um, wearing a badge and wearing a, a proper uniform. And, um, you know, a lot of times I think it's a good way to say engage children. That's one of the things that that is sometimes interesting. But sometimes we're scary, and so it's a, it's a mm-hmm. it's a bit of a balancing act of saying yes, this does this conveys certain things that we need to be mindful of. The uh, since when you're wearing a uniform, you're you're speaking for the government in one sense, uh, and and that's true of anyone in any of these institutions. The people who collect tickets or work behind the, the cash register. Uh, they're all historians as far as the public is concerned. They will ask anyone any question. Uh, we all know that. But l- let me ask the hard question. We live in an era of we're a year removed barely from the, the Charlottesville the tragedy, uh, public literally in arms over how to interpret and remember the Civil War, what to do with statues and memorials. Uh, how has that affected your daily relations with the public. Beth, start with you. Yeah, there's definitely a difference. Um, It's one of the things that we have had a lot of internal conversations about is noticing that our visitors are asking us different questions. Um, They're coming to us with different perspectives than they used to, um, and they're asking questions, I think, that have uh, a lot more um, kind of modern presence. So they are concerned about the Confederate monument situation. They are concerned about um, memory and they're concerned about race and they're so they're they're asking some really good questions mm-hmm. um, sometimes they're coming in and, and they're not asking us questions and we know that they want to so one of the things that uh, we're trying to do is sort of adapt on the fly so how do we equip our people to handle these conversations because you know we we want people to come to us and ask I mean we we are historians for a reason. We want to talk about, you know, what does the Confederate flag mean? Why were these monuments placed? And then let folks decide for themselves, you know, where they want to fall in the modern debates. Mm-hmm. And for us as, as the government, that's a, a very you know, clear line. Obviously, we do not have our own opinions at work. 
um, but we can provide context for these kind of conversations. And I see that as, as one of our most important and relevant roles today is to say, well, if you want to understand the modern era, it really helps to understand the Civil War. And it really helps to understand the debates that these historic figures were having um, to help you to make your decisions about how you want to act in the present. Tim, what, what are you seeing at Pamplin Park in terms of audience reaction? Uh, a term I ran into not too long ago was difficult knowledge. Um, when people are exposed to something that they're not familiar with, they have a hard time grasping it, and sometimes that causes uh, either agitation or them to totally shut down on things. Um, and with our school groups, we get um, a wide variety of demographic groups and, and areas of the state that the, the students are coming from. Uh, some of those groups interpret some of the programs that we do for uh, the students that are all, of course, vetted with historians uh, and, and based in scholarship. Uh, some of those groups think that we don't do enough toward their liking, whether that be one direction or the other politically. Um, so sometimes we get caught a little bit in the middle mm -hmm. when we're just trying to put the information out there and explain why people of the past are doing the things they are. Certainly not defending, for instance, uh, secession or slavery, but trying to explain why the South is doing what they were doing in 1860 and 1861. Uh, so some of those can be um, kind of ticklish, and we try to train our people as well as possible to handle those situations. The uh, You have a film that you've been showing for a number of years, introduced by James McPherson, that then has six first-person interpreters assuming the roles of different people before the war, northern abolitionist preacher, uh, southern plantation mistress, an enslaved uh, worker, uh, a former slave, uh, northern farmers, a yeoman farmer, I think I've got all six of them, uh, and their views are quite complex and, and different, and it shows slavery is not a simple uh, issue, but it, it also uses some contemporary language. It, it's not, it doesn't conform to anyone's stereotypes, and I'm sure that causes some trouble. We'll talk more about this uh, compelling issue in just a moment when we come back uh, with Beth Parnitza of the uh, Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park and Tim Talbot of Pamplin Park. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Our humanity is a thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms, and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. 
guests are people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Beth Parnitza, historian at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, uh, manager of the Chancellorsville Visitor Center there, and Tim Talbot, director of education at Pamplin Park, uh, which encompasses the National Museum of the Civil War Soldier and a piece of the Petersburg battlefield and lots of other fascinating things. We've been talking about public history and its challenges. working at a site uh, related to the Civil War, dealing with the kinds of audiences that come, dealing especially with the questions audiences bring in the 21st century. Um, one thing I especially wanted to ask with the two of you in the room is the, uh, the levels of bureaucracy, how that compares working in a public government institution compared to a privately run institution. Um, that's bureaucracy. <laughs> yes. Uh, we are your federal government, which means that we have a lot of bureaucracy. I mean, we have a lot of, of paperwork that we go through to do just about anything. But honestly, the more that, which is, is perhaps reflective of the time I've spent in the, in the government, is that I start to see how so many of those sort of paperwork trails and guards that are placed on what we do are in a lot of ways working for us or working for the public. It means that we don't make decisions quickly. And it means that um, while sometimes we have to be flexible and adapt quickly, we do, but we also um, are slow to make very deliberate change. And I think it means that we go through a lot of processes for public review. It means that we go through a lot of, of different stages before we make a decision because we always say you know, we're in the forever business in the National mm-hmm. Park Service and the decisions that we make need to preserve these places and protect these places and educate people for generations to come. There is no end date at which point we will be done. Uh, so for us that sort of slow process, although often infinitely frustrating, mm-hmm. is also, you know, we just have to keep reminding ourselves like these are these guards are here for a reason and they are here to help us be good stewards and work, you know, work our job as best we can uh, for the public. I worked in a museum that was run by a private corporation, the, the late lamented Lincoln Museum of Fort Wayne, Indiana, that closed in 2008, uh, which meant that our corporate overlords were insurance people, not history people, but it also meant you might be able to get right to the CEO and, and talk to him, and if, if he wants something done, it got done tomorrow. 
Um, Tim, you have a corporate sponsor. Uh, uh, how is your relationship there, and how, how does bureaucracy work at Pamphlet Park? Um, well, we probably don't have a lot of the delayed actions and types or, or red tape that, that perhaps the National Park Service does. Um, we are a private nonprofit organization that is run and funded by the Pamplin Foundation. Um, so we have an executive director and the decisions would go through him or Mr. Pamplin mm -hmm. to make anything changes that we would want to make. Um, that's sort of the safeguard, I guess. So on the other hand, if Mr. Pamplin himself suddenly decides, you know, we're just going to fly the battle flag all the way around the park. Uh, not that he would likely do such a thing, but there's no safeguard to stop that from happening. That's correct. Yeah, um, he is the owner of that park, mm -hmm. uh, or at least the, the foundation is, and he would be in his rights to make those decisions. So, so there, there's there's pluses and minuses. I mean, if you can get to him and get him, you know, if you need a new projector, and, and uh, instead of filling out a million forms and filing it up and waiting for it to get approved, someone can get him on the phone and then there's a new projector there in the morning. I, this is, my, is that how? Correct. For instance, a couple of years ago we had some problems with our HVAC AC mm -hmm. system in the National Museum of the Civil War Soldier and it needed a, a quick fix to make sure that those <laughs> uh, artifacts remained in good shape and he was able to get that taken care of very quickly, whereas I don't know if that would be the case maybe in state government or federal government, which might have a delay. Mm -hmm. So there, there's there's pluses and minuses both ways. Like, Beth, you're nodding. There would be a delay. You're saying. It it depends on how severe the problem is. But if we had to get a new system, say yeah, that would be that would be some time coming. What happened to the roof leak uh, back in May? Speaking of HVAC systems, <laughs> it's uh, it's very humid in Central Virginia, as you may know, um, and as I'm sure we've all experienced. And it was uh, something in our HVAC HVAC system that just had a, an awful lot of condensation that uh, required a, a large trash can to yeah. <laughs> to receive until our folks could get out there. I mean, our, our maintenance is, is pretty swift to respond when I tell them that there's water in the building, mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of times it involves getting contractors and sometimes that takes time. But we resolved it um, pretty quickly, I would say, for us. Let me turn a slightly different topic. We, in the first segment, we talked about how you get into public history, uh, how, how one does that. And uh, we all know people who are not into public history. How do you interact with friends, family members, uh, people who have not been bitten by the history bug? Do they look at you and wonder, you know, what do you do all day? Just you know, dust the bust of Abraham Lincoln and then take an eight-hour break? I mean, what is there to do in a museum? Uh, how, uh, Beth, how, how do you... You said you have science and, and math people in your family. How do you relate? Yeah, you know, it's it's really funny because I think that my family just sort of takes it with uh, with great humor in that, yeah, okay, so we're, we brought up some modern topic and Beth's going to bring us back 200 years to talk about it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I remember um, both good and bad. You know, I remember distinctly when I, I walked into my grandparents' living room and um, we just happened to be visiting while um, the situation in Ferguson was developing. And... And I remember some family members saying, why is this happening? You know, we really don't understand how this came about. And I just sat down and I said, well, let me tell you. <laughs> and, you know, not necessarily the direct why, but there are so many roots for these sort of, mm -hmm. of 
uh, modern situations. And so in that sense, I like to think, you know, I'm doing good, you know, I'm helping to, to spread the word, but I'm pretty sure that my brother uh, oftentimes is sitting there going, oh, not again. Please, yeah. <laughs> please no more, Beth. We've really had enough. Another historical but, lecture. <laughs> right. But for me, I think, you know, it's, it is my passion and mm -hmm. it is something that luckily my friends and family are pretty accepting of. And I think that uh, of course, you develop a lot of friends in the field, but it's right. something you know that that is part of my life, and therefore becomes part of everybody else's life, hopefully in a positive way. Tim, I left uh, a job as a decently paid lawyer to go back to graduate school. The same summer, I got married. Thus, um, you know, Emily was was counting on a you know decently paid lawyer, and ended up with a penurious grad student. Uh, the joke was on her. Uh, what about you, again, going from a uh, you know, business world into the history world, when you talk to people, do they understand why you made a decision like that? I think most do. Um, they saw that history side of me coming out more and more when I was working in the business world uh, through my own personal study and research and things like that, and they, they sort of saw me heading in that direction. Um, although it required a lot of extra work, uh, going back, as I mentioned, and getting my uh, undergraduate degree in history required an additional 49 hours uh, and then two years of master's work as well at Appalachian State. Um, it, it required a lot of extra work but everybody saw that I was doing something that I was really into instead of just going in and sort of punching the clock each day. Now speaking of getting a graduate degree, for a long time public historians uh, either were regarded or thought they were regarded as the red-headed stepchildren of the, uh, the history profession uh, compared to academic historians, classroom historians. And I wonder, have you, I mean, we're here at, at the Civil War Institute, which is a model of uh, interaction between public history and academic history. You have people uh, attending this, this conference, the, the vast majority of the, I don't know, 300 people attending are simply interested in the Civil War. They're not professionals in the field. The speakers are a range of public historians and uh, professional academic historians. Have you ever encountered the, the, the sideways glance from PhD professors who think what you do isn't real history? Um, ran into that a little bit maybe in graduate school with some of my student colleagues um, but for the most part if you can prove yourself at conferences and through your research and your writing uh, your interpretation of things most people will pay you the respect that you deserve um, with some scholars in the field I think some of them maybe think a little bit less of public history um, but I think we take the information that the uh, academics produce and filter it in a way that the um, general public can understand um, what they're trying to get across through their thesis of their, their argument a little bit easier maybe than they can. Which I would argue is, is, is really a condemnation of the, the professional historical world that, that if we're writing books, uh, it, it's fine to be writing books at the cutting edge, that's what we should be doing, doing advanced research. But if we can't make that comprehensible to a general audience, it's not of a great deal of value. Uh, history, unlike you know, medicine, isn't valuable. And, well, medicine's not valuable till it cures someone. The history's not valuable till people understand it and read it. Um, that, do you encounter that? Do people see you? You come to a conference like this, they say, oh, well, you're not a real historian. <laughs> 
You know, I have to say that um, in my experience, while I think I've I've seen some shades of that, I've actually had a pretty um, pretty good experience with dealing with ap- academics and having um, a lot of respect. You know, I sat on a, a great panel at a conference here in Gettysburg in 2013 with um, many other people, but but the person I'll call out is is Bill Blair, and he mm-hmm. said. We were talking about how to talk to visitors about slavery and United States colored troops and sort of this really um, sometimes challenging and unexpected things that visitors are going to encounter on Civil War battlefields that they don't always think. You know, I mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation, and I would swear some people's eyebrows just immediately, like, why are we talking about that here? But we have to. Mm -hmm. But um, Dr. Blair just said, uh, as part of, of his commentary, was, you know, look, I get to talk to students who come to me for a grade. (laughs) <laughs> you guys <laughs> have to talk to the public and convince them that slavery was the central cause of the Civil War. And you are fighting battles every day that are totally different than what I'm I'm looking at. And I love the way that he framed it in sort of the mutual respect of we do different things, mm-hmm. but it's it's equally as hard or just sort of different kind of challenge to have to walk into a room and, and have such a diversity of opinions that we encounter with the general public and to try to make sure that everybody walks away having learned something or having thought about something in a deeper way, even if it's something that academics have accepted as true for 20, 30, 40 years mm-hmm. to have that trickle down to the, to the general public. And so I've, I've always appreciated that sort of reception from academia that says, we do different things, but they're both very, very important and very challenging in their own ways. What about the role of social media going forward? Does your institution engage in that? Do you engage in that? So I actually manage the social media accounts for the park, Mm -hmm. and um, we do, and it's it's an interesting, brave new world every day. You know, we get to share a lot of neat information with people, uh, and things spark controversy that are probably the least least expected. There are times when I put up a post and I say, oh, this is going to get it. I'm going to watch this post the rest of the day and it just gets, you know, 30 likes and we move on with life. And then I post something that seems totally innocuous to me and I get flaming responses and I say, wow, gosh, well, okay. You know, but to me, it's all about those responses. It's all about those engagements and having conversations with people. And that's really the goal for our social media at the park is how do we get people talking? How do we get people from you know, international sites who may never be able to make it to our park. How do we get them to see and understand the stories of our park and really engage deeply with the themes and and ideas that we have? Tim, do you do the social media thing? Yes, um, both personally as well as part of it at work is is part of my responsibility as well. With um, us having a limited marketing and advertising budget, we rely a lot on social media to get out what we're doing as far as programming. Um, changes, but also historical tidbits here and there. Um, I think it's a great way, as Beth mentioned, to engage with the community and, and tell them why our historic site is, is important to history and why we what we can learn from it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those ways, again, to stay connected to the, um, the network of people in, in the history field as well. Uh, it's a great way to sort of show off what you're doing personally as well if you have your own blog or whatever. So. It is a, a useful tool. Um, so, 30 seconds each, the Civil War talk radio time machine asks guests if you could go back uh, to the Civil War era for 30 minutes, talk to anyone you want to, uh, have, have a little discussion, and, and come back in complete safety. Um, <laughs> Tim, let me, let me put you on the spot. Uh, who would you want to talk to? 
And uh, you're wearing a Frederick Douglass t-shirt today. So <laughs> I, 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 I he would be high on the list. Okay. Um, I came across a gentleman who was in the 36th United States Colored Troops doing some research named Miles James, and he was um, part of the unit that attacked at the Battle of Newmarket Heights and was wounded in the left arm, but yet was still trying to load his musket and fire with one arm. Uh, had a battlefield amputation uh, after the fight and um, requested to stay in the service. Although he could not carry a rifle, he requested that he be provided with a sword so he could stay in the service with one arm. And the determination and inspiration that someone that is that committed to their cause um, is the things that are really appreciated about history. Is when you're having a hard day, think about Miles James. <laughs> Miles James, excellent choice. That's terribly inspiring. Twenty seconds. So, I'll make it. Okay. Make it tough. That's, That's all good. You go? uh, well, because I'm going to go very mainstream, and my my brain in immediately went to Harriet Tubman of all mm. people. I worked for five months out at the new site, new national park site out on the eastern shore, and. I just became absolutely enamored. The more I learned about Harriet Tubman, the more fascinating and incredible she was. And if I got 30 minutes, I think that she would have a lot to share. That would be a, two wonderful choices. Well, thank you both uh, for being here today. Uh, visitors, if you've not been to Pamplin Park, don't miss it when you're south of Richmond. And you all know where Chancellorsville is. Uh, go there and when you're there or any of the other sites in the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, uh, you will look at the people in uniform and maybe know a little bit more about what they do. Uh, Tim, Beth, thank you both so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.